Welcome back to Your Province, Your Premier. Heard every other Saturday morning throughout the province. I'm Wayne Nelson, your host and moderator. This is your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith about a few issues of the day, to ask your questions, voice your concerns. But again, as we've said in so many shows, please keep those questions or concerns as short as possible because we only have so much time. Same thing with the text, short and sweet. Premier Smith, Welcome to the show. You've had a busy couple of weeks. Nice to see you again, Wayne. Yes, for sure. Well, you got a, a new office in Ottawa. You're just back from Washington, D.C. I'd like to talk about those developments throughout the show. But first, the big issue that has people out protesting, my God, changes to Alberta's transgender policies. Now, you've been taking a lot of flack over this one. Critics, many of them students, say they weren't consulted. They're the ones uh, who are affected uh, to a, a great degree by the proposed legislation. Other transgender experts also say they weren't consulted. So who was consulted and and what's your take on this on this whole thing well as you may know wayne i, I mean i've been meeting with transgender individuals from the time i was in politics the first time and all through when i was on the air and uh, afterwards uh, as well and one of the, the starting points for me was was just realizing that we don't do very good aftercare when somebody has has ultimately gone through and, and had the full transition we send people to quebec and then there is in the case of of some of the surgeries a 100 percent complication rate and we just don't have very good aftercare so my starting point was how can we bridge this gap for to support those in the community who need to be able to get that care it's part of the reason why we're going to be bringing in we hope somebody who can specialize in those surgeries so they can do them here, make sure that we have uh, good family medicine so that people are specializing in the lifelong support of individuals who are in cross-sex hormones. And so that was one part of it. But then, of course, we were watching as uh, the, a conversation took place across the, the country about at what point do kids begin the transition. And, of course, we're seeing in Europe that the UK is taking a, a U-turn. They had troubles at their major uh, gender identity clinic. So they've they've paused their approach. They're shutting the clinic down. They're taking a new approach. And so has like Finland, Denmark, Sweden, Netherlands. So there's been tons of consultation, not only with members of the community, uh, members of the LGB community as well, who are, are, are concerned that uh, some kids with same-sex attraction are being prematurely uh, funneled down a particular path of, of gender transition. Plus uh, a, a variety, I've been watching that there's a division in the medical community about the best way to approach this. So we just needed to set a few guardrails uh, up, and that's why we put forward the package of, of policies we did. So doctors, and some doctors, say that the proposed legislation is not based on scientific evidence. Now, if we look at it, does it not come down to an issue of parental rights versus the mental maturity of younger uh, people to make these kinds of decisions? I, I think the most important thing is the maturity of young people to make these decisions. Now keep in mind when you go on puberty blockers, you're, you're blocking your maturation of your reproductive organs. You're, you're sort of stopping that process. Um, and if you don't ever go through puberty, you'll never be able to have children. And so we have to decide at what age is the right age for someone to decide that they're going to interrupt their ability to have children. And so that's that's a you know that's a, a question that we have to consult 
widely with. And I, I must say, a lot of of, uh, of court jurisprudence that we've seen um, suggests that sort of 16, 17, that's when we end up with uh, kids being mature enough to be able to make these kind of lifelong decisions. That's part of the reason why uh, you'll see that that is at the point at which uh, kids can have the, the cross-sex harm, hormones and continue on the process. Surgery will happen at the age of 18 when people are fully able as adults to accept the consequences of their own decisions. But I, I think we have a difference of opinion about whether or not that process should be interrupted and stopped when that child is still a child. I think I think our job as politicians is to make sure that we're preserving those choices for kids to make when they become adults. A couple of I- issues from your, from your point. There are a couple of questions. Okay, let's look at the age. The courts say the legal age of consent in Canada is 16, although there are exceptions. A young person can't legally consume alcohol in this province until they're 18. Uh, They can't legally drive a car by themselves until they're 16, but only with parental consent until they're 18. And they can't serve in our armed forces until they're 18, 17 with parental consent. I had to look all this stuff up. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's really, there's no consistency and there are exceptions. So shouldn't that be the case with this legislation? There always is a process of um, a court process where someone can be declared a mature minor at a younger age. And we we have seen that. And so they'll, um, but it is very rare. And so we we felt it was better to to provide some policy certainty so that kids who are going through this know that they can start the cross-sex hormones and the transition process at 16, have their surgery as soon as 18. And then for younger kids, that, that's just going to be a, a longer process. They're, I don't want to interfere with how, the, how this might play out in the courts and whether there may be certain circumstances where the court determines someone is mature enough to decide that they... Um, that, that they're they're going to uh, uh, never have children. Uh, that that would be something that uh, that the court will have to decide with the with the requisite evidence. I mean, there is, as I said, processes for that to to take place. I'm sure that'll also take place. On that note, um, on the subject of puberty blocking hormones, it would seem to make sense. You know, if you're if you're looking at it from the young people who are concerned about this legislation, it would seem to make sense that if a young person knows that the gender they are isn't who they really are, that the time to administer puberty-blocking hormones is before they enter puberty and not after, which is what the legislation calls for. I think what the um, what they found in the UK with Tavistock is that 100% of the kids who went on puberty block blockers went on to, to cross-sex hormones. So, so you really are, in taking that measure, you're locking in on a particular pathway that ultimately leads to, um, uh, in the case of, of a full transition, uh, infertility. So that's why we have to make sure that it comes we, back that the to kids... That, it circles back to that, that age where we need to... You know where the legislation says we need to take some control. We do. We do need to make sure that we're providing some guidelines. I have to say, because again, the the community of doctors practicing in this area is divided. I don't want anyone to think that there is uniformity in the opinion on this. There certainly isn't. And and perhaps um, there should have just been uh, more coverage of what was happening in the UK and in Europe as these things were, were developing. But I, I think people need to be mindful that no one has um, have, ha, has a perfect foresight of how this is, is going to play out. Uh, and, and we just want to make sure that no child feels regret because they made a decision 
that was at too young an age without all the information and ended up affecting their ability to have children at some later point in life. So I, I know it's I know it's complicated. I know it's a hard conversation, but but we really think that ultimately, if you're going to make something of that consequence, it's the child who has to be the one of a mind to know what they're doing and the long-term consequences of it. Interesting that on the uh, the Alberta Weekend Morning Show with Kevin Osselman, he uh, just had a straw poll this morning. Over 300 votes came in on the text line. Uh, his question was, do you support Alberta's proposed new gender transitioning policies? An overwhelming 69% said yes. Uh, no, uh, also uh, 6% said more consultation is needed. Well, we'll certainly cons- consult on implementation. We, we we know that's why we've announced where we're headed right now, and there's going to be a lot of individuals who are going to be responsible for implementing these new policies. So so that will take place over the, the coming months, and we'll have a legislative framework ready for the fall. All right. We've got time for one quick call before we go to an early break, so let's, uh, let's do that. Uh, Chris is calling in from Edmonton. Go ahead, Chris. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Oh, good morning, Madam Premier and Wayne. Um, I wanted to talk about British Columbia's new payment model for family doctors, which came into effect last Wednesday. And of the 4,000 eligible doctors, 1,000 of those doctors signed up on the first day, and they expect significant take-up of the program. It's called the Longitudinal Family Physician Payment Model, which pays doctors for the number of duties that come with the job. Now, I, I read this morning that... $57 $57 million is being rolled out for administrative costs to Alberta doctors, which, I, if I calculate this right, it's about $7,600 per doc over three years. But my question is, what is Alberta's payment model going to be? When is it going to be rolled out, and how much is it going to be? The, we're, we're looking at, at very much a, a similar pathway that we've seen in Ontario and British Columbia, where there would be, I, th- I think what my minister is contemplating is a certain amount of money that helps t- to defray the cost of operations, because there's a, a huge administrative burden in running an office. You have to make sure that you've got the money in order to pay your staff and put in your computer, computer systems and, and have uh, your office space and electricity and utilities and all of that. And so we want to try to take the the stress out of that part. So, the, so one part would be providing some kind of administrative support payment. And then the second part would be paying the doctor on the basis of the patients that they hold with their panel as opposed to on each visit. I mean, as I've been thinking about it, when we do a fee-for-service model, we're essentially asking doctors to run a $400,000 business by charging out $36 at a time. So just even thinking through all of the administration that goes along with that versus if you say, hey, look, You've got a thousand patients. We'll pay you X number of dollars per patient. Manage the prevention side. Manage the chronic illness. Try to keep them out of hospital. If you need to see them for an acute need, cover that off. That is a, a more sensible way, I think, in the environment that we're in to be able to pay doctors. It took us a while to get to this point. It's been talked about for years. Our AMA contract negotiated that last time around. That we're going to try to get 25% of our doctors under that payment model. If, if the success in BC is any example, we will probably end up with a similar sign up. And then I should just add one more. We did an agreement with the federal government to give $180 million, again, directly to support primary care, that those dollars come to us, I think, in April. And that will be the additional amount that we're going to use to be able to support family practice. 
In addition, we're going to allow nurse practitioners to uh, also set up family practice as well. They're very, very highly trained individuals, and so they can do a great range of the same kind of uh, primary care that uh, that doctors can too. So we, we hope to be able to, to bridge the gap with, with both of those approaches. All right, we're going to have to pause for a break. I'm Wayne Nelson. I'll be back with Premier Danielle Smith, more of your calls and some texts when we return on Your Province, Your Premier. If you're just joining us today, you're listening to Your Province, Your Premier. Heard every other Saturday morning for listeners throughout Alberta and Edmonton on 630 Ched here in Calgary on QR. Calgary, your opportunity to be heard by Premier Danielle Smith. All right, back to the phones. And uh, Don from Edmonton is calling in on energy and alternative health. Go ahead, Don. You're on. Hi, Danielle, Premier Smith. Sorry for the noise in the background. I just picked up a little Emmy. But, um, so for alternative energy, if we could fund, like, every, if the whole goal is zero carbon. So there's tons of technology out there that haven't been developed. And my question is the same for both topics. Would the province fund and protect the people as we could bring this technology forward? Um, on healthcare, okay, so there was DCA came out a long time ago, a University of Alberta cure for cancer. Um, dogs can detect, we use them to sniff out like a pound of cocaine in a gas tank, but we can't, they can detect cancer five to 10 years before the system does. Um, it just, the doctors, they, they only do what they're trained to do. Like I was just looking up a machine in the States and the technology is old. It's like 10 year old technology. It can cure a stage four cancer in two months and it's FDA approved. Like, could we not, set up departments to move us from like the stone age into the modern society i've seen for the last 20 years i've seen some of the most amazing technologies that we could be using but nothing ever happens with they don't get funded they stay in other countries they just anyway that's that's my question is how can we move the the medical system forward and the zero carbon emission system forward and um get it into like stop driving model t's and start you know getting into spacecraft instead of what we're doing right now that's my question could the government get behind that thanks don i will just say yes and yes when i was a kid i, I still wish i could remember the show on access television where they had a, a male and female broadcaster and they always brought forward really interesting scientific innovations it was going to be the next big breakthrough and then it never got implemented so i think i shared don's frustration so on the first one one of the things we fund is emissions reduction Alberta. And when we have companies that pay that have a higher level of emissions than the average in their sector, they pay into a fund and then that fund goes to support the kind of things you're talking about. And I can tell you, we funded Ever, uh, which is the the, um, the the new geothermal company that's uh, making big headlines. We funded Lithium in Brines. We have funded direct air capture through carbon engineering, which Occidental bought for a billion dollars and is now ro rolling it out at, at multiple sites. So so have some hope. I mean, we, we, we haven't funded every single great idea, but we sure as heck fund a lot of them. And we're going to keep up with that, with that, with that approach because it's working. On the second one, 
One of the things that we I discovered that we do is that if we don't have the technology here, we, we end up sending people to other jurisdictions to be able to get treatment. So I don't know if you're talking about proton therapy, which is a, a progressive new therapy for giving for, for cancer treatment. We do send people to Florida to be able to, to get that kind of treatment. Now, can we bring some of these things back home? I sure hope so. Um, so I, I think that, that if we can begin with that type of approach where we're contracting initially when we find these great ideas, demonstrating with our own capacity that it works, and then the second step is, is bringing them here, then we can have the best of, of both worlds. So, so those are the things that we're actively looking at, Don. All right. Uh, Paul has texted in on the QR line. He said, why do I have to go to another province for private health care while out-of-province people can come here to Alberta for private care? Can you fix it so I can get joint surgery in my own city? <laughs> Uh, well, no, and yes. So no, we're, we're not going to have anyone pay out of pocket to, to get uh, medically necessary care. That It's a violation of the Canada Health Act. It is something I ran on. I said we would not do it. We are not going to do that. The the thing that, um, that, he's, that John's talking about is we have this weird loophole in our law where if you go, if an Albertan wants to go to Toronto to get near hip surgery, they can pay out of pocket. And a Torontonian can come to Calgary and pay out of pocket but if you live in that province you get you can't pay out of pocket so i think that that's uh it's a weird loophole in our system i the way i think you solve that is you make sure that you clear the backlog you make sure that every patient who gets uh who gets affirmed for care and is ready to treat gets it in a medically reasonable period of time so that nobody ends up having to go out of province i i want to see us clear our backlog develop the extra capacity through the use of our hospital operating rooms to to better use as well as our chartered uh, surgical centers and then we can be accepting patients from all across the the province that's what what we're working towards we've got a, a big backlog that we need to clear first but I, I don't want anybody to feel like uh after all the years that they've paid taxes that they also have to then pay for their their urgent and necessary medical care that's just not fair it's just not right we've got to just do a better job all right we have hundreds of text messages this morning, uh, many of them on the uh, gender legislation, uh, and there are other questions as well. So here's one that I wanted to uh, to bring forward. This is from, this is on the Ched line. Uh, the texter says, I'd like to share our experiences of the last six weeks. My husband was referred for hip surgery last April. The referral is yet to be acknowledged. We have contacted the Premier's office and the Health Minister's office with no results. My husband spent a week in the U of A for uncontrollable pain early January. Every specialist said he needs both hips done. His pain is so bad he was sent home with oxytocin to control the pain. He's unable to work. His mental state is very low because of the pain and the sense that his life is now useless. Please stop pandering to the far right and do something for the people in this province that are suffering on a daily basis. Our experience in the ER was something out of a movie. It was a nightmare. We are beyond frustrated and looking for any options available. Oh, I'm I'm equally frustrated. It's, it's why we started down this path of reform I, I, uh, just over a year ago now. And it's because after 15 years of just letting the experts tell us, give us more money, we can run the system, we, we actually saw a larger and longer waiting list. It didn't matter how much money we were putting into the system, is that they weren't able to get ahead of this problem. So we, we have now... Um, created a, we've got a new uh, executive leadership team. We've got new CEO. We've got 
got a new minister, and we are moving uh, some of these some of these ideas some of these uh, uh, decisions forward because we have to. We we just know that continuing to do the 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 things the way we always have is going to result in the same outcome. I I know people are not seeing results as fast as I want to or as fast as they want to, but we are we have an aspiration by the time we get into the next election. Everybody has a family practitioner. We have eliminated the waiting list for those who are, are, are waiting for surgical care, that they will, they will be waiting within a medically reasonable period of time and that we have an efficient way of having patients dropped off at hospital, be seen and treated, or be seen and admitted. Those are those are the galvanizing principles that are guiding everything that we do. And so I, I, I hate to tell people who are experiencing such terrible pain to be patient just a little bit longer, but, but we're, we're, we're working on solving all these problems. All right. Uh, Neil has texted in on the chat line. Uh, Good morning, Premier. I'm increasingly frustrated with the add-on fees to utility bills. My latest EPCOR bill for January had $12.43 charge for, quote, stormwater charge. It was 40 below. There was no stormwater flowing anywhere. Is there anything you can do about these over-the-top, excessive, and ridiculous charges? Well, I can I can tell you. I mean, the city of Calgary also had to do a little bit of looking in the mirror when they realized that their franchise fee, their municipal franchise fee, was uh, charged on the basis of what the amount of electricity charge was. So they've been charging an, a higher and higher tax, the higher and higher electricity electricity bills go up. So that's one thing that is, is on our radar about how we're going to address that. The the other things that you'd mentioned about most of the bills in Calgary and Edmonton, EPCOR and NMAX, they do a consolidated bill. So you'll have your electricity on there. If you also have natural gas with them, your heating, it'll be on there, plus your water and your wastewater and I think garbage pickup also. So I know people look at that bill and they think, oh my goodness, look at how high my power is, but it really is four or five different services being charged at once. I have asked my Minister of Utilities and Affordability whether we need to expand his mandate because right now it covers home heating, it covers electricity. Do we need to expand it to cover our wastewater uh, and water systems to make sure that those are being regulated properly and charged out properly and, and built out to the communities who need them because we have many communities, including First Nations communities who don't have them. Do we need to add broadband into his portfolio as well? Because as you're opening the ground and laying pipeline, maybe it makes sense for us to co-locate some of those services together. So... We're having a, a, an active conversation about this. The pause is coming off with wind and solar on February the 29th. We will have a, a clearer pathway about what uh, the companies need to do to get those projects approved. But we've realized through this process that we have a lot more that we need to fix in how electricity is built out. So right. you will see more on that after uh, the 29th as well. Okay. Charlie's been hanging on there for uh, half the show. Uh, Charlie, go ahead uh, with your question. Good morning, Premier Danielle. Hey, Charlie. Your biggest fan, and if not the biggest, in the top ten. And I get down my knees every day and thank you're doing the job. And, so and your question, Charlie. Is the APP. Uh, the federalities have the question. They have the money. Is there some sort of time limit that we have to wait for the answer? Or am I going to be dead, gone, and forgotten? before I see any money in my pocket. And B, if we get the answer and if we have a vote on Plan 9 from outer space and it's a yes, and I'm voting a big yes on that, uh, 
Do you have any ballpark idea of implementation and uh, a timeline? Do I see money in my pocket? Well, thanks for those great questions, Charlie. So, so first of all, the uh, federal government did come back to us, and they said that they have um, the actuary, uh, the chief actuary, has said that that they've hired three independent agencies to look at what the legislation says and come up with the calculation. Uh, that's what we did. We hired LifeWork, and that's why they came up with the calculation that we're entitled to 53% of the fund because we overpay every single year. It gets invested, and those dollars grow every single year. And they uh, didn't like our calculations, so they've got three independent calculations happening. I've been told that that will happen in the fall. And so once we see what that number is, we'll have a better idea to go back to Albertans to show how much we'd be able to reduce contributions, how we might be able to increase uh, benefits. But that's why we put legislation in, in place just this past session to make sure that any transfer of those assets stay for an Alberta p- pension plan. Anytime we look at the contributions, they have to be the same or lower. Benefits have to be the same or higher, and it will be put to a referendum. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not sure that Albertans want to have a referendum just yet. I think they need more information, and that's what we're we're going to provide. So, no, you don't have to to wait uh, as many years as you're suggesting, Charlie. We should be able to have an answer to this sometime uh, in the fall. In the fall, and we'll see how far apart we are at that point. All right. Uh, question on the Ched line: Why are we still sending equalization payments to Quebec when, first of all, they never even signed the Constitution. Secondly, and more importantly, in my opinion, this is the texture's opinion, they completely oppose an energy corridor going through their province. They want to reap all the benefits of being part of Canada, yet have no interest in being a team player. It's even worse than that, actually, because re- remember, I think people got really irritated with th- this discussion when there was extra money available for equalization, and so they gave an extra billion dollars to, to Quebec, and then uh, the, the Quebec Premier turned around and said, yeah, but we don't want your dirty oil. That's when people said, wait a minute, you you cannot continue to get 13 billion plus transfers from the federal government that largely comes from the overpayments of our taxpayers in Alberta and then try to kill our economy. So uh, I've been, as you know, I, I put forward a paper last year talking about how we would be able to, to phase out equalization. And the, the nice part is that I, I have a couple of premiers who also want to have this conversation. The federal government just rolled over the existing formula. They did that last year. And so we want to make sure that doesn't happen again because they renewed it for five years. When it comes up for renewal four years from now, I'm building a coalition of premiers who will say, no, let's do it a different way. And and I think my biggest ally on this is going to be the liberal premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Andrew Fury. And the reason why uh, why he is is so committed to solving this problem is is they have it even worse than the, than we do in some ways because they have resource revenue so they don't qualify for equalization transfers they're a small province they have huge debt based on the trouble that their economy has had over the last number of decades and yet they pay more into the central government so that money can be ta- transferred to both Quebec and Ontario last year this formula was never meant for the small provinces to be transferring money to the two biggest provinces. It's outrageous. And so he's as outraged as I am. So you'll see uh, that he and I are going to work together on this. We've already started the conversation. So there'll, there'll be something coming to very soon. And if, if, if both us as well as Newfoundland can come up with a solution that will work, then uh, then we're going we're gonna to see if we can pr- persuade a few more premiers. All right. Uh, Daryl is calling in from Diamond Valley on a housing question. Uh, Daryl, go ahead. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Good morning, Premier. Thank you very much. 
my question, I don't know if you'll be able to have an answer for it. But in Calgary, on Memorial Drive, there's an 18-story apartment building that belongs to the city of Calgary. It's sitting empty. Hmm. Now, in the past, they were going to tear it down, but now they're talking about renovating. But nothing's happening. Now, why is that? Now, the federal government last week announced $100 million for renovating. I think if the city of Calgary was to apply, they could probably get some of that money to do that. I mean, it's kind of silly to have a building like that sitting empty and people living on the street in tents. Thank you very much. It's a great point. You know, I'm, I'm seeing the mayor today, so I'll, I'll pose that to her and see. The, the only thing I can imagine is that there may be significant renovation costs. Some of these old buildings, anything that was built, I think, in the 60s and 70s, Wayne will know this, it's just chock-a-block full with asbestos, like asbestos yeah. paint and drywall and Ceilings. ceiling tiles yes. and floor tiles. And so, and some, they're not built for residential either. Right. So I don't know this one. This one sounds, if it was on 18th or on Memorial, 18th story, I don't know, it might be, it might be one that can be converted. But I can tell you from what I've observed, Calgary is very keen to find candidates for that. They're, they're, they're doing those kind of conversions of downtown office buildings, which is even more complicated. So if they were able to, if they owned a building and it was a good candidate, I would say that they would be very keen on doing that kind of renovation. So there might be something wrong with it. So I'll see if, I'll raise it with the, the mayor. It could well be that it's just not on, on the radar, but uh, if it is, there might be a reason why that's not being done. All right. Uh, we're going to go back to the text line because, boy, it is just uh, coming in. Well, what are people crazy. saying? What's the, sort of the general sentiment? Okay, so here's Jerry. Jerry is uh, texting in on the Ched line. He says, I really don't give a damn about this gender crap. I'm more concerned about what you're doing about electricity prices. I don't care what uh, transmission, distribution, grid. All I know is my bill has tripled in 18 months. Then I'm being told to cut back on power. I've lost my cable and internet in order to pay. Let's just say the H indexation is a wash. I drink one beer a day. Last week, eight of them was $13.45. Yesterday, $14.45. Alberta tax. The federal tax kicks in April 1st of 5%. Jerry's a little bit upset. Well, for good reason. I mean, there's there's lots that's happening at the federal level that it just makes me shake my head. The fact that people are already facing punishing carbon taxes, causing all kinds of problems for heating, for electricity, for gasoline and diesel, building into the price of everything they buy. And they're going, if you can believe it, they're going to increase it again on April the 1st. I mean, at, at some point, jeepers, don't, can we yell uncle and just tell them to stop the pain? We can't seem to be able to break through on that. And then, of course, they're bringing an increase to the, the beer tax because I think the, the liquor taxes just automatically increase because of indexing. So people are going to, to feel more of that pain. Yes, we have work to do on electricity, um, but I must tell you, part of the reason I had to do the solar and wind pause is that we know, because of what we experienced in mid-January, that there are some times when it's minus 35 or minus 60 with the wind chill, that this, and, it's at, and the sun has gone down, there is zero solar and practically zero wind. That day that we had to do the emergency alert, there were seven megawatts of power that were being generated by wind of over 6,000 installed. So we have to make sure that we are building a grid so that on the highest usage day, 
assuming there will be zero wind and solar, we can still keep the lights on. We came 40 megawatts shy of of having to uh, to to uh, to start the rolling blackout. So so look, I, I need to get more natural gas built. And the federal government is telling me I can't do it. They're saying the only way we'll get approval to build out natural gas is if it's 95% abated by January 1st, 2035. Otherwise, it will be subject to the Canadian Environmental Protection Agency laws and people will go to jail. So you can imagine nobody wants to build in that environment. So we may have to set up a crown corporation and we may have to build those those uh, those installations ourselves just so that we can make sure that we've got a safe, reliable power in order to be able to continue adding more solar and wind to the grid. So uh, we're everything is coming home to roost at this precise moment. All of the coal is coming off this year. We were waiting for 2,700 megawatts of new power to come on. I think we have a little bit of breathing room to be able to solve this now, but we've got to continue to build baseload power in order to keep up with demand. All right. Uh, Ken has texted in on the Ched line. He says, you interviewed a gentleman about a pipeline across northern Alberta and B.C. to the coast south of Alaska, paid for by First Nations, wondering what's happening with that. I, I wonder, uh, that would have been Calvin Helene back in the day. And uh, that was the, I think it was an Eagle Spirit a pipeline project. Uh, I think it's time for us to, to have a conversation about, about whether or not we, we should um, work with First Nations and whether there's an appetite to, to do that. I can tell you, uh, Trans Mountain is going to make a big difference for us. Most of the product is going to go down to the United States. But in talking with my counterparts down, or my, uh, my staff down in Washington, which is where I, I, I just was, if we had had that a Northern Gateway pipeline built, it would have changed everything. It would have changed everything not only for Alberta, but for our country, our ability to diversify those who are purchasing our product. We would have been able to support our neighbors in this incredible time of need as there's so much global uncertainty. And so I'm quite open to having the conversation to see if there is an appetite among First Nations, especially now that you've seen with our Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation, we find a way for nations to take an ownership stake in those lines so that they can get the long-term revenue stream associated with the tolls. So I think we've changed the conversation here, and I'd, I'd like to, to restart that. It may take a change of government at the federal level to be to be able to, to get that that rolling, but I, I think my first step is going to be talking with the, the nations to see if they're interested in being able to elevate this potentially to a decision. All right, here's a follow-up question uh, relating to uh, Jerry's text about being so uh, unhappy with uh, the way things are going. This is from Beverly. Uh, She's calling in on the Ched line from Edmonton. Uh, Jerry had mentioned that uh, uh, something about Aish just wasn't doing it for him. Uh, Beverly, you've got an Aish-related question as well. Go ahead. You're on with Premier Danielle Smith. Thank you very much. Good morning, Premier Smith. I'm 62 years old, and I'm disabled. When I turned 65 years old in, in January of 2027, my Aish financial and health benefits end, even though my disabilities do not end. I've checked into all of the sources that I will be receiving, sources of income that I'll be receiving when I turn 65, the OAS, the GIS, the Alberta Senior Benefit, and the CPP Retirement Benefit. All of those sources of income will be 33% less than what I have now. And I've written a letter to you and Minister Nixon. Uh, I haven't uh, dated October 25th, 2023. I haven't heard from either of you, and I'm requesting that you and Minister uh, Nixon uh, 
introduce and pass a bill to allow vulnerable, disabled senior Albertans to keep their much-needed and irreplaceable age, financial, and health uh, health and disability benefits. Um, and I've also requested to meet with Minister Nixon in person and have been denied. So um, that's all I wanted to say. Thanks, Beverly. This is one of the advantages we'd have if we had an integrated Alberta pension plan system that would be able to integrate with our other programs, is that we would be able to create some kind of pathway or transition. At the moment, we don't. They're two, they're two separate systems. They're not integrated. So when you turn 65, you do end up going on the, the programs that are available at the federal level. And, in, and uh, CPP is a a jointly managed uh, program or all of the provinces have agreed to, to join in that. But that's part of the conversation is uh, do we do we want to be able to have better integration through through these programs by being able to control this ourselves? And I don't I think the jury is out on that. Nobody um, I'm not seeing uh, yet that there's a huge appetite for uh, for the uh, for a referendum on this. Um, there's right now there's a huge appetite for more information. And so I, th- I think that that's one more reason why we would want to be able to have control over the fund ourselves. All right. We're going to pause for a break. Uh, a busy, busy uh, day today. The phone lines are, are are still lit. We have literally hundreds of text messages, and uh, I'm going to address one when we come back uh, regarding the the gender transition policy. I'm Wayne Nelson with Premier Danielle Smith. We'll be back to wrap things up in our final segment on your province, your premier. Wayne Nelson back with you on Your Province, Your Premier, your opportunity to speak with Premier Danielle Smith one-on-one. If you've got a specific question you'd like the Premier to answer, you know the numbers to call, and here they are, just in case you don't remember. 403-974-8255 in Calgary, 780-496-0063. All right, uh, before the uh, the break, I said I was going to uh, talk about a couple of other texts that came in regarding the uh, gender legislation. Question from Fancy in Edmonton says, what percentage of texts are negative regarding the LGBT legislation? Like, I don't just mean disagreement kind of negative, I mean like bordering on hate speech negative, just curious. All right, since this show started at, uh, and I went back to 10.01 and I've looked at all the texts and the overwhelming majority are yes, there have been a couple of questions, there have been nothing Uh, bordering on hate speech negative. There have been a couple of negative questions. Uh, That would seem to track with Kevin Usselman's straw poll earlier today on the Alberta Weekend Morning Show in which, uh, well, this would actually be a little bit higher stats in which his text poll results were 69% in favor of the legislation. So that's where we're sitting right now. The text messages overwhelmingly in favor of the legislation. Phone calls haven't mentioned it once. And there is one other text message that I wanted to get out uh, before this show ends. This is also on the Ched line. If this legislation is passed, uh, or policies, whatever they may be, if those of us working within the education sector will be obligated to out the students to their families, parents, guardians, etc., what kind of supports are going to be put in place to ensure the safety and security of that child if their home life is not safe? What supports are going to be available to those uh, within the education sector knowing that we may have been the reason the student 
may have killed themselves. Is mandatory outing of the students by education staff safe and truly secure when considering the students and potential home lives? Yeah, that that absolutely will not happen. And that is not the intention of, of what we're proposing. What we're proposing is that if the child is out, they have a new name. They have a new gender. They're presenting that way. They're using the washrooms. They're participating in the sports clubs. Every member of the school community knows it. And presumably their you, family. Then yeah, that's, you, it's you, the presumption, Then right? the, the point is you, you cannot have that child then pretend when the parent is on site and go back to their dead name and go back to their other gender and dress differently and have the entire school community trying to keep a secret like that from the parents and the family. That, that I think, is more damaging to a child. But if a child isn't ready to go that, uh, that full-out step, of course they want to be able to have a, a, an adult they trust to be able to talk these things through. It's The intention is, once you've changed the name in the registry and you're calling the child that name in the school and they are out with the new name and the new and their and their and their and the gender they identify with in the school community it's uh, it's fantasy to think that that can't be that, that 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 is then going to be kept from the parents that that is that's uh, i don't think that's healthy for a family environment it's not healthy for the child i think we should start from a presumption that a child's going to be accepted for who they are that is what i see is that families love their their loved ones, love their kids, no. love their nieces, love their nephews. The home life, though, and I there would are lots of reasons. There are lots of reasons why you have dangerous situations. It's why we have a child welfare system. There are lots of reasons why a child might be in a situation where they're in an unsafe environment. And if that also is confided in a teacher, we will find a pathway to make sure that that child is put into a, a safe environment for whatever reason. We, uh, as I said, child welfare laws and protection laws are going to be strictly enforced. But, but let's let's be very clear. If there's going to be formal name changes, if that child is going to be out in their school community, you, you can't keep a, a secret like that from the family. All right, let's switch gears. Uh, Michelle is calling in from Calgary regarding the drought in Alberta. This is going to be a big question, a uh, big issue that is going to affect a lot of uh, people in the agriculture sector and probably within the cities as well this coming year. Well, what I, what I want to see and, and what, what my environment minister, Rebecca Schultz, has already started is we, we have an emergency management committee of cabinet uh, we have had already updates on what's happening on fire season. Uh, we've also had an update on what's happening on drought. And there, down south is where it's particularly bad, Old Man and St. Mary's and uh, and further south. Over in my area that I represent, Brooks, Medicine, Hatton, it's, uh, it's pretty devastating. So there's going to be a couple of tracks. One will be we probably need to have an agri-stability type program to be able to provide compensation for losses like we did last year. But we also want to find a way... To, uh, to streamline some of the construction of reservoirs. A lot of, um, of what we have as a problem in Alberta is we let a lot of the water come through all at once and then flow through to other jurisdictions. And so is there a way that we can uh, a fa do a fast track to approve dugouts for those who will be able to catch the water runoff on their property? Is there a way for us to do a fast track on any reservoir expansion projects? Remember, we're spending almost a billion dollars on expanding our in irrigation infrastructure. Is there a way if the Springbank dry dam, as you know, I had always hoped that that would be a dual use or a multi-use. <laughs> Is there some way to re-engineer it so that we can hold the water back so it can also be used for water usage? I've asked them to look into that. Don't get your hopes up. I'm pretty sure that that's not the case. But and, on and coupled with that, we've got another busy wildfire season ahead. Completely. And I was quite 
surprised to find that we already have 57 wildfires burning in this province already. It's true. And, and some sometimes you end up, because we've got very peaty soils, um, sometimes you end up with fires that started in the last season taking yeah, it's a that full that, year. Yeah, smoldering underground Completely. type thing. Yeah. So, uh, so I can tell you one of the things we learned, because we had the worst fire season in Alberta's history during the election last year. We were having our emergency management committee meetings in the morning and then having to campaign in the afternoon. And Todd Lowen, uh, he he did double duty. He, he, he really did a lot of work to make sure that fire guards got built in key areas around communities so that they didn't burn down. He he cleared the pathway to make sure that uh, firefighters, especially Indigenous firefighters, would be able to be seamlessly brought in to, to assist us. Um, he um, We've also done a lot of uh, drone work at night, so he, he shifted the, uh, the the firefighting time frame so that we could do more firefighting at night when uh, so that we're working with the weather, but you send the drones out, they find the hot spots, and then you can bring people out to be able to, to dig and douse. And so we, we will see a lot more of that. He's also informed us that they're working on getting their core team of firefighters in place early. I think normally we have that in place uh, by by uh, the beginning of May. He's going to have that in place in April. Uh, we got to the finish line on de Havilland as well, which is going to be building new, the, sort of the next generation of water bombers right here in, in the province. They're going to be uh, uh, breaking ground on that project very soon. And so we'll be working with the other jurisdictions to see if we can jointly have the equipment that we need. There's a the Forest Fire Center that is works interagency really did a, a tremendous job in making sure that we had the, the firefighting equipment and talent that we needed. So I, I, I want people to know that this is very much on everybody's minds because we, we went through that experience last May and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be ready. The other thing I should say, there's a, an incredible company, an Alberta-based company called Fire and Flood, which which did an amazing job of, of saving Drayton Valley. So Brazo County uh, commissioned them and what they did is they set up, they're kind of, there's forest firefighting is one thing. It's a different set of, set of skills. Structural firefighting is another. That's what all of our municipal forces do. And where they meet is kind of a unique a talent that you have to be able to fight. They put up a wall of water to match that wall of fire and ended up saving Drayton Valley. Then they got deployed to Hay River. And so those are the, the kind of innovations that, that we brought to bear last time around to make sure that fires do not jump into, into towns and cities. Um, and also the, the fire breaks get built so that they're wide enough so that the fire doesn't jump between the treetops. And I can tell you, Todd's all over it. All right. Uh, we've got time for no more questions. Uh, but out of time. <laughs> got, oh, sorry. But I, I give long answers sometimes, well, Wayne. Well, but, but sometimes the topics require further explanation. Uh, listen, ever since uh, I asked that uh, one text message about how many negative comments came in <laughs> regarding the legislation, a few more negative comments came in. But uh, overwhelmingly, it is... Uh, in favor of the legislation and uh, i guess we'll just have to see uh, what happens down the road uh premier smith thanks for joining us once again we'll see you in a couple of weeks see you then we'll do this again same time in a couple of weeks i'm wayne nelson you have been listening to your province your premier